0: Welcome to Kappa Kappa Psi presents. My name is Jessica Lee, National Vice President for Student Affairs, and I am here today with our National Executive Director, Steve Nelson, um, who works at headquarters in Stillwater, um, and it also is a brother of the Alpha Chapter. How are you, Steve? <laughs>
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm so glad you can. I know your schedule is busy and you're always um, working on different things, going to different committee meetings and stuff. So I appreciate your time tonight um, and glad that you can sit and chat with us.
1: No, I'm happy to do it. Um, I have to apologize. I'm getting over a cold, so my voice may be a little uh, scratchy at times. So just bear with me.
0: (laughs) No problem. Um, So today, um, you know, I chose you to kind of talk about how Kappa Kappa Psi got started because you have this really unique um, connection to our founders. um, And I just find it so fascinating, um, the connection you had with Kappa Kappa Psi before you ever became a member. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners um, just that uh, connection you have to some of our founders um, and, uh, sort of how you became a brother of Kappa Kappa Psi.
1: Okay. So, um, I spent some of my early years in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, uh, <clears throat> that's where I got my start in band. So I didn't pick up an instrument until the summer after my sixth grade year. So seventh grade band was my, was my first time in band. And, uh, I remember vividly uh, when I was in about eighth grade, my dad started taking me to play in the Tulsa Community Band. It was something that he played in. And, uh, you know, it was just it's your typical community band, not made up of great musicians, but uh, just people that had a great time playing together. And one thing that I learned was a lot of these uh, men and women that were playing in the band back then. This would have been oh mid nineteen seventies. A lot of them were uh, veterans, especially World War Two veterans. And I came to learn later that there was even a World War One veteran, and oh, wow. it was a man last chair uh, clarinet. I was you know the very last of the last because I was eighty. <laughs> And that only playing for a year and that we were trying to play all of these uh, Sousa marches and things like that. So I was I didn't even know what some of these notes were. <coughs>
0: <laughs> You're but just I, guessing and hoping it all worked out in the end.
1: <laughs> well, you know, if you play clarinet and you get to those notes that are above the staff, you know, and it's like there's like six ledger lines. I have no idea what this note is. <laughs> Anyway, I did the best I could, but what I remember vividly is that there was a baritone player that was sitting behind me. And he, you know, he was 80 something years old and he'd kind of shuffle in and he'd sit down and I, but he played wonderfully. He had his beautiful tone and everything. Um and I came I came uh to know later that that was Carl Stevens. Wow. It was, you know, one of the founders. At that time I had no idea that Kappa Kappa Psi... It, even existed or anything like that. I just remember this man who loved to play. Um, and he would just sit back there and he had this beautiful tone. Uh, it wasn't until I was, a, a membership candidate, uh, that I, I, recognized that name. And I remember going to my dad and say, this is Carly Stevens guy. Is he the guy that played in the Tulsa community band? And he goes, Oh yeah, that's Carl. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. He, so he his career, he was an engineer and uh, he spent most of his life, you know, in, in the Tulsa area and playing in the community band. And who, how would I ever know that one row behind me playing in my ear, playing his baritone in my ear was Carl Stevens, who was, that <laughs> became this legendary figure to me. I just remember being so impressed by that.
0: That's so cool. And your dad was a member too, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, this is something I didn't know either. After I was initiated and I took my uh, membership shingle home to show to my dad and how proud it was, he was, goes, oh, I got one of those. <laughs> <laughs>
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Let me let me blow the dust off. Sure. I think I have one of those somewhere.
1: (laughs) Well, it was framed and everything. And he pulled it out of somewhere. And and yeah, he was uh, uh, initiated into the Alpha Pi chapter in 1944 uh, at the University of Tulsa. And uh, his shingle was signed by F. Lee Bowling, who was national president at the time.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. How special is that? Yeah, Effley Bowling went on to be uh the founder one of the founders of the National Intercollegiate Band in 1947.
0: That's that's I just think that's so neat how you just have this cool connection that you know years later you would find out, oh my gosh, I you know, I couldn't imagine being you and later on finding out, oh I was sitting right in front of playing in the same band as someone <laughs> that thought of, of this organization that you've been involved with, you know, most of your adult life, which is incredible.
1: Yeah. Uh, I have an even better story than that. If you'd like to hear it.
0: Oh, please share.
1: <laughs> so my grandfather was uh, named Frank Nelson and he was a, a doctor in Tulsa, just a general practitioner. And uh, you know, We lived out in West Texas and New Mexico, but we would come back to Tulsa every now and then uh, for Thanksgiving dinners or Christmas dinners or something like that. And there was always this couple that would come. They were really good friends of my grandfather, and uh, we, we just called him I.H., and, uh, you know, and he was always there that we always had dinner with him and things like that. and would sit around and talk and it was, uh, I H Nelson, Iron Hawthorne Nelson. He was one of my grandfather's best friends. And uh, yeah, so even as a little kid, I was having Christmas dinner with the founder of the fraternity and just didn't even know it. <laughs> it's,
0: it's like you were destined, you know, that's yeah. so, it's so crazy how that was just all meant to be. And I just, I just think that's awesome. And so you, you played in, you ate Christmas dinner with a founder, mm-hmm. played in band yeah. with a founder. Yeah. Um, and, uh grew up and then you went to college, um, in Stillwater, um, and then got initiated into the alpha chapter. Um, and, um, just for our listeners out there who might not know you kind of tell us about your, how did you get to where you are as national executive director?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, that's a 40 year story. If (laughs) you're
0: the fraternity steps, you know, how is, how, what's your fraternity story?
1: Um, Well, I sort of became a member accidentally, maybe not accidentally. Um, So uh, I wasn't extended to bid until my sophomore year. And that was the fall of 1980. And uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And I I just, you know, I knew all the the guys that were in the chapter and everything, but I just wasn't convinced. And I actually missed first degree. And (laughs) then... And they came to me later, and Oops. they were just like, "Yeah, I know." And they said, "Steve, Steve, you really, you know, really think you ought to do this and everything." And so I went, like, oh, "Okay." So they made a made-up, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it—the informal first degree mm-hmm. ceremony. Yeah, so that's how I became. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> ritual. <laughs> it was like you know, in the dark of night, in the you know, uh, you know that that's how I got first degree. But, uh, anyway, so everything was fine after that. I was, I was president of my class and we did a lot of things together. And, uh, so I was initiated in uh, November of 1980 and I was active all the way through the rest of my undergraduate degree. And, uh, I, as well as my graduate degree and, uh, uh, being at Alpha Chapter is a little bit unique because the, at the time the national office was there in the Seratine Center, which is the music building, at Oklahoma State, and so I was in the office every day, um, just sitting there talking, working. Uh, you know, typing up things if they needed help, moving boxes. Uh, back in those days, the national office would ship the podiums to the chapters directly from the from the office. So we would have to tie them up in bundles and wrap them in paper and put postage on them and all that stuff. So there's a lot of manual work that we were doing uh, to help out the headquarters. And that, that just sort of instilled a real interest in being involved in the fraternity uh, past graduation. So. Uh, As I was finishing up my graduate degree, I decided to run for national council and at the national convention 1987, the University of Michigan, I ran for uh, what was called national member at large, which is uh, equivalent of your position, the national uh, vice president of student affairs is similar position. And uh, so I had that, that position for two terms, and then after that, I was governor for ooh, going on nine years, over nine years, I think. Was and it then, was it the
0: Southwest District then, or were they a Southwest district number? District.
1: No, they changed the when I when I was an undergrad, it was District Six, and then if I if I recall, it was that 1987 convention that they. Uh, changed the names. They did a little bit of redistricting, redistricting that's a tough word to say. And uh, uh, that's where the, the names were changed. And we became the Southwest District. And uh, I became governor of the Southwest District in uh, 1993, thanks to my good friend, uh, Stan Fink, who was a national president at the time so I held that role for almost a little over eight years, I think. And, uh, then I was on some of the alumni committees and things like that, you know, did various, had various volunteer roles. And then, uh, when the national executive director job was open, I applied for that. And here I am today, four years later.
0: I know I had a moment where, um, Jack and I were talking and I was like, oh, wow, Steve has been there four years and we're lucky to have you. Your knowledge, your experience, uh, the way that you are um, can be a mentor um, and a friend and always a listening ear. Uh, the organization is very lucky to have you in the role that you serve.
1: Well, thank you. I, you know, I do the best I can. We, uh, we all have our own talents and I, I try to use mine uh, as best I can.
0: No, I, I just, I, I think it's cool for our listeners to know, um, kind of that backstory that they might not know. Some of you have listening, if you're in the Southwest District, you might be recognizing his name because there's an award named after him. Uh, if I remember, it's the Steve Nelson History Award.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Um, and so uh, now you kind of know why the award is uh, named after him and who he is. little backstory.
1: <laughs> you have the most uh, very kind ways of telling <laughs> me how old I am. But.
0: No, but I think it's cool because, you know, sometimes if you don't make the connections, people just, um, and I'll give you a perfect example. In the Northeast District, the Governor's Cup has been the Governor's Cup for a long time. Well, it's actually the John P. Ross Governor's Cup who was named after a brother from my chapter, um, who was a district officer who was killed um, in a car accident while he was a district officer. Um, And so that Governor's Cup is actually named after him. But for a long time, his name was dropped off it and no one knew why. Um, And then we kind of uncovered all this. um, And Marie does a a great job. Marie, Mike, um, they do a great job when they present that award of honoring uh, John P. Ross and talking about him and the contributions that he gave when they give out that award. So history matters.
1: Well, I know. And I agree with that. uh, You know, there have been so many wonderful people in the fraternity and the sorority over the years that, uh, you know, we we tend to think only in terms of the people we know at the time. But I think it's good to be able to remember some of the people that came before because 100 years is a long time and we're getting really real close to that. And there's been a lot of people that have made that happen.
0: So tell us now that we're thinking about 100 years, um, I, you are, um, you've are. you done a lot of research on bow. Um, mm-hmm. For those of you listening out there, um, there is a bow book. If you're interested in it, you can order it from national headquarters. Yes. 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 $10. $10. Um, and so, um, talk to us a little bit about Bo um, and um, his life and just how this idea of Cap Kappa, Kappa Psi got started.
1: OK, well, you know, I think we learned a lot of the basic facts when we're membership candidates. But uh, just to kind of go over the basics, he was you know, he was born in uh, at the time it was Czechoslovakia in the Bohemia region, which I think now is in the Czech Republic. Um, he immigrated to the United States because he had a sister living in uh, Nebraska, a town called Clarkson, Nebraska. You know, he learned some clarinet and things like that, but he he never had any extended musical training. Um, But... Uh, so he, he ended up in Clarkson, Nebraska with his sister. And as I recall, he, his first job was rolling cigars in a cigar factory. Um, he didn't like that very much. And then a circus came to town and he managed to get on with them to play clarinet in the circus band and left town on the railroad and to be a circus musician, (laughs) um, some point later, he ended up in Oklahoma and the, and the circus uh, ran out of money and he was abandoned in Oklahoma, had never been there before, didn't know anybody, but he just persevered and uh, survived in Oklahoma, joined bands, started forming his own bands. And if you think about the time, you know, early uh, 1890s, uh, early 1900s, there wasn't much in the way of recorded music and there wasn't much in the way of amplified music. So if, if you had an event, you wanted a live band there. So he got his – made his first reputation uh, with the Makovsky band that used to travel around Oklahoma to all the little towns providing bands for various events. You know, everything from weddings to political events to, you know, Fourth of July celebrations, whatever. His band was one of the bands that would go around, uh, play at conventions and whatever. And uh,
0: So how did he – how did he then make his way to Oklahoma State?
1: Um, well, or Oklahoma had,
0: A&M, I guess, at the time.
1: Oklahoma A&M College, yes. Uh, he had a good reputation, and the, the, the college president needed... Or wanted, needed a new band director. So he made an offer to Bo Makovsky to come to Stillwater to direct the band. And when he got there, uh, he was actually in charge of the entire music department. Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, oh, it's like,
0: oh, and by the way.
1: <laughs> well... Yeah, it was very small then. Back then, uh, there really wasn't a music department. It was, uh, he was in charge of the ROTC bands. Uh, and as I understand it, there were two bands. There was one they called the military band, which was the marching band. And then there was the uh, regimental band, which is the concert band. Um, I think I have those names right. Um, but that was it. And then he was tasked with, uh, you know, Uh, taking those bands over and then building that into a music department. And that's exactly what he did.
0: Wow. So and then so about how old would he have been then when the idea of the fraternity start coming about?
1: I'm trying to do math in my head.
0: I know I am, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a question that no one's ever asked me before. (laughs)
0: Oops. (laughs) Sorry.
1: Um, I think he would have been in his thirties,
0: maybe late thirties. Yeah, I think that sounds about right.
1: Or uh, maybe, um, but I do know that. Um, oh
0: yeah, forty. You know, yeah, I just looked it up. So he, yeah, he would have been about forty.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Didn't screw that up. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, so you know the. You have to try to put yourself into the, the time period uh, and you have to think about the students that were on campus in 1918, 1919. So quite a few of them were uh, in the military or had just come back from World War One, And several of the founders you know, had spent a year in the military, in the Navy mostly. Um, uh, and had come back at the beginning of the I uh, guess in 1918, early 1919, they came back to to school. Um, but th- these guys were farm boys. Most of them came from little towns in Oklahoma. Uh, they had nothing. They had no money. They had very few possessions. Some of them had never even played an instrument before, but they wanted to play in the band. So, so some of the musicians that Bomakovsky had in his band, he taught from scratch. Wow! Uh, yeah, um, and I'm trying to think. I think even I think William May Scroggs may have been one of them who'd never played a cornet before until he he came to uh, Oklahoma A and M. So, crazy. so I mean, that, so that should give you a little bit of an idea of the influence that he had on them, because <clears throat> he was known as a very strict conductor, a very strict teacher, but. He was extremely kind to his students and, you know, he knew that they didn't have any money and they didn't have anything. So he'd help them find jobs. He'd help them find places to live. And, you know, he would help them do do anything he could to get them through school. So they had a lot of, you know, deep respect for him for for everything that he brought to the table as a, as a musician, but also as a friend. Mm. And so that is why he's the guiding spirit. And that is why the, the 10 founders decided to honor him by forming a fraternity that would, um, serve bands, um, based on his inspiration,
0: that's kind of incredible, you know, when you think about that these people were so inspired about this person that had such an influence on their lives that they would create this organization that kind of mirrored his values is the way that I understand it. It was an organization that was created about him as a person, the values that he as a person that we, you know, we would strive to be, you know, more like Bo. Mm hmm.
1: And, and, you know, that philosophy still carries through today. It's why when we, you know, uh, f- create new chapters or work with chapters, it's all goes back to the director of bands and what he or she is trying to do in their band program. We want our chapters to support that. So it always goes back to the director as the inspiration for what the chapter is supposed to be doing
0: mm, and yeah so. that, that's a great I, I never thought about it about like quite in that way but yeah I can I totally see that
1: yeah and you know it is you know a lot of things have changed in the fraternity over 100 years but that has pretty much stayed the same that's and I think that's that's you know that's our that's at the core of our being why we exist
0: So cool. So who of our, um, and I I know some some of this, but I always think about that there could be listeners out there that, you know, don't remember, don't know, or we could have candidates listening or something. So who were the real, the most influential of our founders in really getting us started?
1: Well, obviously, William A. Scroggs, you know, he is uh, the one founder of CapCap Psy. So we have to kind of get our terminology correct here. Uh, I've heard Bo McCoskey referred to as the founder, and he was not. He was the guiding spirit. He was the inspiration. But William A. Scroggs is the one that's credited with with coming up with the idea and taking it to Bo for you know his blessing, basically. Um, and then there's a Frank Martin who, um, was right there all along, and, but he had the longest longevity. He was, he was involved with the fraternity for the rest of his life in one way or the other. Um, he was also, you know, uh, executive secretary, which is basically my role for gosh, from 19, oh, I'm going to get these dates wrong <laughs> from like 1939 to 1964, something like that. Wow. Yeah. Um, um, and also I would say Dick Hurst had a, a big role as a student. They they all played their own role. Uh, some of them, uh, lasted longer than others. Um, uh, but, uh, Dick Hurst seems to be one that had an influential role early on. He was a leader on campus. He was a leader in the band. Uh, I think he was drum major at one point. And, uh, so I, I think he was critical, in in getting it started although i'm not sure he gets enough credit for that
0: yeah and i've actually you know you know everybody kind of talks about a frank and and scroggs but um i've not heard much about you don't hear much about some of the other founders
1: Mm-hmm. Some of them we don't know very much about what happened in their later lives. Uh, some of them we know quite a bit. Um, some of them went on to great things. Some of them were educators, engineers, doctors, uh, businessmen. Um, but there's a few that we kind of lost track of right after they left school. And we're not really sure what happened to them. There's at least one that's like that. And I'm trying to remember who it is. Um, but I found out something uh, recently that was new to me. Clayton Sewell uh, was an avid photographer from the, from his student days all the way up to when he passed away at nearly 90. Um, he was an avid photographer and you can actually go online at the, uh, I think it's the Oklahoma historical society and see the Clayton Sewell photography collection.
0: Oh, that's and cool.
1: It, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You it's, it's, should put that link somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, there's, there's those little things, um, that you come across that always surprise you or, you know, shock you. I always, my favorite thing, um, if you ever have listeners out there, if you have the opportunity to go to headquarters or you're thinking about coming to National Convention this summer um, and going to Stillwater, um, I love looking through uh, old batons. I'm always really fascinated to see what people have written back then um, and and just the way that they spoke and just the little tidbits of information that you can find uh, when you read through those old podiums. Or batons, mm-hmm. actually, sorry.
1: Right. The baton was the first uh, publication okay. that we put out. And, and then the name changed to uh, The Podium a little bit later. And uh, part of that had to do with uh, trademark issues and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so The Podium is the successor of The Baton. But those, some of those batons are really interesting because – You know, they're, it's very early years of the fraternity and they're full of great ideals of the future and and what they want the uh, organization to become. And, uh, from a very. You know, early 1900s perspective. You know, they're really kind of cool.
0: Well, and it's also cool too because that was their only form of communication. So when you look in look in there, you can see the list of every member and Mm -hmm. or minutes from from conventions. And that's the thing I think is cool is that that is the only way that they had to communicate that sort of information to one another. And you know, we take we have so many forms of communication at our fingertips that we take for granted. We know so much about how the fraternity operates and what we do. And even this podcast, um, and, and yet back then all they had was just in person, um, or phone calls or waiting to get their baton in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) I would think they would be really anxious about that.
1: (laughs) Things weren't that much different when I was a membership candidate. We had, we had telephones and typewriters, but that was about it. We still had to do everything by the mail.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, actually you say that, uh, Tim Greenwell, one of our past national presidents, I, you know, he lives, uh, very close to where I live and, uh, we get together for dinners and, you know, I remember Tim, uh, talking about how he would, um, document everything, um, that he did, his conversations, um, you know, everything that went out that he would keep this document of everything that he did because you couldn't, it, it was difficult to communicate things out to people. Um, and he would just try to track everything so he could, um, have this sort of record of what he was doing. And we have so many ways that we record. But then on the flip side, I think about some of the ways that are dying because we don't send a lot of letters via post anymore. You know, chapters have their boxes. I, I can think my chapter has this um, container, and not really container, what am I thinking of? Like a, a metal uh, shelving like a thing. Cabinet yes, there they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we have all these boxes and, and included our letters, like particularly when uh, John P. Ross passed away. There's all of these, um, there's a letter that we received. There's um, all of these notes and, and stuff like that. And people don't do that anymore.
1: You know, w- you know, we, we have the, the National Archives at the headquarters. And one, one of our most you know, favorite things to do is pull open boxes of files and start looking through them and looking at the letters, you know, but we stopped really filing a lot of that when emails started to become them the way, communicate and so a lot of that stuff is just digital now and we don't know how to file it and we don't know where it is necessarily because you know something important may be in my inbox but it also might now be in evan thompson's mailbox (laughs) and things like that and you know um and we're we're gonna we're gonna lose that ability to just pull open a file and discover something and uh, that kind of makes me sad um so I, you know, I, I have a technology background. I did IT work for over 15 years <clears throat> um, and I'm, start, I'm starting to become what's called a Luddite, an anti-technologist, because, because we don't say things like we used to. And
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, and I know you and I have had this conversation before and how do we, you know, you can't. Save anything digitally because then at some point things become outdated. Because I can remember when I was a brother, I'm active, so I I hit my fifteenth anniversary in November on the twenty second, and I remember um, when they moved from mailing out the uh, guide to membership which some of you out there might not even know what that is. Uh, You know, when you think about it, because Mm -hmm. now we have the road to wisdom. It was pre road to wisdom. It was a giant book of all the fraternity knowledge, but none of the activities or lesson plans the way you see it now, but, but they stopped mailing them. And I remember getting it on a disc on a CD Mm. disc. (laughs) And that might've been like 2005, I think. And now they are, com- and, but now when you think about it, they don't make computers that have disk drives anymore. Nope. So, I mean, already in 15 years, that's antiquated and, and doesn't exist. So even if we were to try to save, th- I mean, really the only way to really save some of these things is to print it out, I guess, because any other way you'd save it could become obsolete, I would think.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can go to some of these old libraries and find a book that's 200 years old, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But a CD only has a shelf life of about 20 years before it starts to degrade, and hard disks fail and things like that. So now everything's in the cloud. But what happens when you forget where you put something?
0: Well, yeah, and, Right, right. And and I don't know. I, I just I think about that, you know, what are and we are totally tangenting here. But, you know, what are the yeah. ways? But it, I mean, in your chapter, I mean, just thinking about history, 100 years of, mm-hmm. of service and, you know, in our chapters, um, you know, how are we preserving what we're doing um, to pass them on to other people um, to go back and look at, at what was done? Because even pictures, we don't print. We make yeah. digital albums. We put them on Facebook or on Instagram. Instagram. Um, yeah. and I, you know, I'm guilty of that myself. So, uh, thoughts to ponder on how we preserve yeah. the next hundred years of Kappa Kappa Psi.
1: I, uh, with The podium is to include historical things that we're doing, you know, so that at least we have the podium as a, as a historical record of what the organizations are doing. It's not much, but it's something
0: oh that's a you good get the point. high points hopefully mm-hmm. well and you know because we even we've lost pieces of our history when the the fire happened right where there's things mm-hmm. where we sort of have that that blank spot and i don't i i just know there was a fire i don't recall when it happened or or what happened
1: so i recall it was around uh 1977, maybe it was in the seventies. It was before my time. So I don't know. I don't know the exact date. Um, most of the, most of what happened was, uh, there was a fire, uh, in the national office at the Saratine center and, um, a lot of financial records were lost, but there were there was a certain amount of, of archival materials, but the thing is that we don't know what we lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, things weren't really cataloged back then. So we, we, that's sad because we, we know we lost something, but we don't know what it was we lost. So sure. that's a double, that's a double whammy. <laughs>
0: right. we, there could have been something good if we knew what it was. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> the key to everything could right. have been in there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, well, so sort of wrapping up our, our conversation and, and doubling back, um, when, um, when you think about, um, when, um, we actually became an organization, um, and, in our, when we began, um, what besides Bo, what other influences um, do you think um, are, are, you know, our founders they that they use to kind of help create CapCapside? Because I know some of them had some um, ties to other organizations. Do you feel like that influenced how we were started?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, and on that point, I think there were three things that sort of influenced uh you know, the ritual and the organization, how the organization came together. And if one of them was uh, uh, the Masons, uh Makovsky and a, and a couple of the other founders were uh, were Masons. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm almost certain that uh, the ritual is, was influenced by that. Um, Also, quite a few of them were members of fraternities on campus, uh, either Lambda Chi Alpha or uh, Sigma Phi Epsilon or what became Sigma Phi Epsilon um, on the uh, Oklahoma A&M campus. So they brought some of that knowledge into the fraternity. Uh, But I think also uh, the fact that several of them were World War One veterans and there was something about that war you know, there were they, they talked a lot about honor and brotherhood and camaraderie and, you know, uh, being of service to each other a lot during that war. Um, it was a lot of it was spoken about, you know, and I think that also was brought into the fraternity and how it was created. So those those three things, I think, had big influences
0: just fascinating. And uh, you know, when I, uh, it, it, you have to wonder at that time, did they have any idea that they were creating an organization that would be where it is now? Like I, I, you just wonder, did they, did they know how, how we would grow and, and the influence that we would have on the college band world with our commissioning project, with, uh, uh the intercollegiate band, um, you know, the, the people that have had an influence on our Organization, um, you know, the relationship we had with John Philip Souza, all of those great things that have helped, mm-hmm. you know, make our organization what it is. You have to wonder do you think they knew that they were doing that or were they just making this organization that was just about people?
1: You know, um, when I was an undergrad, we had a, a workshop at OSU and we brought in Carl Stevens and IH, and a question like that was asked, was asked because I remember it and they they felt that um how can I put this Th- they didn't have any real clear idea of where it was going but they felt that as long as the the ideals that it was founded on you know and the memory of Bo Minkowski was maintained that it couldn't help but grow.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, that, that's it, I never heard Yeah, and, and I, I think that Because everyone I ever talked to That knew Bo And there's still A few people around with that Bo Never have I heard anyone Say a bad word about him everybody always had the highest respect for him they they were scared of him from time to time because he was strict but they all they always said that he was the the most well-known person on campus and he was always extremely well thought of and there's another proof to that i was looking through uh the uh oklahoma M yearbook and uh in 1922, so Bo had only been on campus about six years, the senior class decided to dedicate it to Bo to Mikowski. And so that was not just the band students. That was the entire campus wow. knew Bo and respected him and dedicated their yearbook to him after only six years on campus. That's...
0: The-
1: so there's something special about that man.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I like that we still, you know, just some of those points that you've made just really show that while we've changed a lot in 100 years, there are fundamental things about us that are still the same and why we're here. And I think that's special.
1: Yeah they were special but they were human too so we you know a lot of remember that they were normal band kids you know maybe some of a little bit older maybe a little bit wiser more experienced you know having been in the military but they were no different than than the band kids today you know
0: No, I, I appreciate, you know, I, I think that's a great way to wrap us up. Um, and I appreciate your time tonight, Steve. Um, thank you for spending a little bit of time, uh, chatting about the fraternity and your history today. Um, and is there anything else that you want to leave us with?
1: Um, keep an eye out on all the news that's coming up on the national convention and the centennial celebration. Yes. This July.
0: And um, actually, when this episode is going to air, it's going to be right around Founders Day. So be watching because uh, there are several things that are going to be released um, on Founders Day, um, both uh, from a communications team, from our national president um, and from our centennial committee. So great things to look forward to. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Steve. Um, have a great night. And again, I appreciate your time.
1: Sure. This was fun. Let's do it again sometime.
0: And to everyone out there, I um, hope you enjoyed this evening. Um, be looking out for um, our next episode uh, coming up where um, one of our communications team members um, sits down uh, with um, Southwest District Governor uh, Clint Whedon. And he's going to talk about the early years. So kind of the first 20 years of Gap GAPSI. So thanks for listening and keep striving.